Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Coming up next, a conversation with Lucinda Williams, who's performing at Bloomington's Buskirk Chumley Theater on Thursday, April 14th. Since her last show at the Buskirk in August 2019, the pandemic laid waste to most live performances, and Williams' own health issues further preempted tour plans. As WFIU's Yael Cassander was happy to hear during their conversation over Zoom, Williams is doing well after suffering a stroke in the fall of 2020, writing her memoir, and back out on tour promoting her latest album, Good Souls, Better Angels. In their chat, Lucinda reflected on the twists and turns of her career, the cost of sticking to your guns artistically, her relationship with the dark side, and men. The sound is unmistakable. But getting that sound heard was not inevitable. Record company executives didn't know what to do with Lucinda Williams' sound in the early days. I did a demo tape, and it was sent to uh, CBS or Sony in L.A. He said it was too country for rock, and then Sony in Nashville said it was too rock for country. One producer she got passed along to in the 80s remixed her songs with a big bass and heavy drum beat like disco. They wanted to, to try to find a song that would be a single for the radio. So they were they were sending certain songs for this guy in New York to, to remix for the radio. That's what that was. Yeah, and I didn't like the sound of it. Was it ever tempting to sell out, or did you just stick to your guns? What was that struggle like? No, I just, I mean, I don't know if it was as much bravery as stubbornness, <laughs> you know, I just, I had this deep-seated fear of being, of, you know, being too slick, my music being too slick and too commercial, you know, so I was just terrified of that, you know, so the slightest little thing I just would get worried about, you know, too much reverb or too much this or too much, you know, the like the remixes, a lot of the sound that came back was, you know, it had to do with what was popular on the radio, the sound that was popular back then. So the bass and drums would be, you know, pushed more up front. The vocal would be pushed back, you know, in the mix, that kind of thing. And I basically wanted the opposite of that. When I look back on it now, I've, now I probably overreacted a lot. <laughs> now I think back and I think, well, maybe I, you know, what if I, because... I was worked with Rick Rubin a little bit, you know, and he wanted to do some stuff. And I was always like, no, no. And now I'm thinking, well, what if I allow, had allowed him to just do whatever? And, you know, maybe I would have been more successful sooner. And, you know, because look what he did with the BC boys. And, <laughs> you know, he took me aside one time and played me a PJ Harvey album and said, this is what I was I had in mind for you, Connor. Come on, Billy. Come to me. You know I'm waiting. I love you and But I was so paranoid and freaked out about 
you know, we're even working with an outside producer, you know, who just letting them take the reins, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But now I think back and I think, oh, maybe I should have been a little, shouldn't have been so uptight about that. That point is debatable. Williams' commitment to her creative vision ultimately resulted in her inclusion on the big lists of greatest songwriters of all time, greatest women in rock and roll, and an honorary Doctor of Music degree from the Berklee College of Music. Admittedly, the glory took its time. Williams was already in her 40s when she received the Grammy for Best Country Song for someone else's cover of a song that had appeared on Lucinda's own album six years earlier. That's Lucinda's recording of Passionate Kisses. Mary Chapin Carpenter's version of Williams' song reached number four on the Billboard Hot Country Singles and Tracks chart in March 1993 and number 54 on the Billboard Hot 100. But the track had barely made it on Carpenter's album. Like Chapin, that's what everybody calls her and knows her. She wanted to record Passionate Kisses, but she got some resistance from her label. He said that it wasn't country enough. <laughs> All over again, huh? Yeah, there we go. So, but she stuck to her guns and said, I don't care, I'm going to cut this song and I want it to be the first single on my next album. The song, which put Lucinda Williams on the map as a songwriter at least, is a simple anthem of self-esteem, a sort of I am woman, with a little less bravado. It starts with an assertion of entitlement to the humblest things. Is it too much to ask, the song begins, that I want a comfortable bed that won't hurt my back, food to fill me up and warm clothes and all that stuff? Over the course of the song, she musters the verve to travel higher up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, wondering whether it's not also reasonable to expect a few intangibles, such as cool, quiet, time to think and most of all, passionate kisses. A healthy set of expectations for thriving as a human. At the same time, all along, Lucinda Williams' songs traverse a countercurrent toward a place where healthy expectations don't stand a chance, a place populated by derelicts in duct tape shoes, charmers and scoundrels, men who like to flirt with death. Your ability to fathom the, the darker and more depraved places in the heart has, has in, endeared you to many fans, including this one. And you have, you have a, a particular gift at, at expressing the allure of dark and dangerous relationships yes. and individuals. So, but recently I've, I've seen some songs that are like rebukes, like exorcisms of bad behavior. Songs like Waking Up or Bone of Contention. It's in your blood, abomination of all that's good. I saw you walk in. You're two-headed dog and you pretend 
to worship God. Now when I listen to some of those songs from the eponymous Lucinda Williams album or even Car Wheels and compare them to the songs on Good Souls, they sound almost like nursery rhymes. And so what is your relationship with the dark side these days? And, and should we read the arc of your, of your discography as, as a cautionary tale? Well, I'm trying to, you know, nowadays I'm trying to navigate around, you know, the really dark spaces and, you know, dark, dark relationships or unhealthy relationships and stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to grow, basically, and, you know, I think my music is, and my songs are, if you listen to everything, you can hear the, see kind of what I was going through and growing, going through it and growing out of it. I'm trying to exercise these demons, you know. I remember Joni Mitchell talking about not being able to sing some of her early songs anymore because she says, I don't sing that anymore. That's an ingenue role. And I'm wondering if it's at times really painful to revisit those places. No, because I look at it as a, you know, it's just kind of cathartic and something I have to do to, I mean, first I write the songs for myself and, you know, it's something I'm going through and I have to just kind of purge this stuff, you know, get it out and put it on paper. When I revisit it, I don't think it's any different really than looking at a photo album and looking at old photos. Mm-hmm. which can make you sad sometimes or depend, just depends, you know, mm-hmm. um, but that's kind of how it is for me when I go back to those songs. So a lot of artists feel like they have to lead really turbulent lives and have a chaotic mental health in order to yeah. produce good work. And, and I know that in the, in the past, maybe you, you admitted the same, that you, you felt like you needed some of that chaos in order to make good work or to get, to get really... Maybe a little bit, but I'm, as I've gotten older, I've become more aware of doing that and trying to control that a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not really healthy. <laughs> you don't have to do that in order to do good art. I think that's kind of a myth. Maybe, I mean, I'm just wondering for you, has it been the opposite where the the art making has in fact been therapeutic? I th- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I feel like as I've found a place that's a little more, that's a little more calm and a little more peaceful that I can work in and, you know, be real productive. Do you have a a particular creative practice uh, for writing? Are you, you wake up and do your morning pages or something like that or? Yeah, I I like to write right after I wake up. Mm -hmm. That's where the, when the magic happens for me, you know, get my coffee and I just, something just, Makes me want to sit down and work on something. I don't know what it is, but I'm not worried about what it is as long as it's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as I have that urge. Yeah. 
And is yeah. it is it sometimes a writing urge and sometimes a playing urge? Yeah. Well, yeah, they both kind of go hand in hand, of course, because I'm usually working on a song or trying to start. I'm just starting a new one. So I'm working on lyrics and the melody, both. It seems like lately the my pattern has been writing lyrics first. I, I write something. I just get something out there. It might just be stream of consciousness almost at first and get something on the page. And then I'll sit with my guitar and go through and see if I can come up with some kind of melodic pattern. And then once I get that, then I go back and edit the lyrics to fit the tempo and the melody and everything. And just kind of put it all together. Writing, art making, it's in Lucinda Williams' bones. Her father was poet and University of Arkansas professor Miller Williams. The author of more than a dozen volumes of poetry read at President Clinton's 1997 inauguration. You had a strong relationship with your dad too sounds like yeah yeah he was my role model as far as men mm-hmm. definitely yeah brilliant funny good looking creative you know mm-hmm. yeah 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 he sounds incredible and so why did you decide to become a um, a singer-songwriter instead of a, a literary scholar or a poet no, or something. I kind of wish I'd gone <laughs> that direction now. No, um, no. <laughs> <we're>... <laughs> well, sometimes I wish I was a short story writer, more like Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes along with being a musician and the, you know, that comes with the territory. I just love, grew up loving music and listening to so many great artists and like Bob Dylan and a lot of the other great songwriters, Leonard Cohen and, you know, Joni Mitchell and Jimi Hendrix, because he wrote some great songs. And the Doors songs I loved, you know, I listened to the, I was really into the lyrics and I paid attention to the lyrics and study the lyrics. I'd look at them, read them and listen to them. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, Jim Morrison thought he was very profound, I guess. You didn't think he was? I don't know. Uh, I think he thought he was. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, the jury's still out on whether he was or not. He sure, yeah. looked, he sure looked good when he was saying it. Yeah, though. he did. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't hurt. No. You know? Talking with Lucinda Williams about guys. It doesn't get much better than this. Has anyone you've written about ever um, complained? You know, <laughs> has everyone been honored by being the subject of, of a Lucinda Williams song, or have there been some? Sometimes who... I get a little embarrassed about it. You know, mm-hmm. this, I, have, I know this one guy, he was kind of, his friends were kind of teasing him a little bit, you know, about that. But, I'm working on a book now, memoir, so, you know, I'm talking about some of that in the book, like who I wrote said this about, who I wrote that about, because everybody always wants to know. The promise of a kiss and tell from Lucinda Williams is pretty tempting. But for my money, the characters in her songs don't need further identification. 
The authentic detail with which she renders her characters allows a listener to extrapolate from them to our own experience. In other words, her powers of observing and representing specific people and situations allow them to resonate with a listener's own experience. You know, one description that I have heard of artists is that artists are intrepid explorers who, who are willing to, to navigate the far reaches of the human experience and then come back to tell the tale of what they saw, and they might not make it, actually, you know, at the risk of not coming back. Um, and, and that's one of my favorite, favorite definitions of what an artist, of what an artist yeah, is. That's, that's pretty good, yeah. And I would say that that's the kind of artist you are, mm-hmm. and, that, and that I think you are an artist who's uniquely positioned to help humanity in these dark times. <laughs> kind of like a, yeah. super, like a superhero, Lucinda. <laughs> I a, always make it back, though. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything that would threaten my existence, you know. <laughs> For WFIU, I'm Yael Cassander. Yael spoke with musician Lucinda Williams over Zoom in anticipation of Williams' performance Thursday, April 14th at Bloomington's Buskirk Chumley Theatre. Williams is touring in promotion of Good Souls, Better Angels, her 15th release since 1979. 